A city's architecture communicates a city's aspirations. A city's architecture communicates something of a city's aspirations. So consider the just down the road from here, the many marble monuments in Washington, D.C. Those are all a gleaming testimony to a nation dedicated to liberty and justice for all. Consider for a minute the oil enriched city of Dubai, the financial hub there in the Persian Gulf. It has 61 five star hotels. And the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, 163 floors, 2,700 feet tall. That's over a half mile stretching into the desert sky, communicating its aspirations to be a city of wealth and abundance. Consider the city we just read about, the city of Babel in Genesis 11. It was also known as Babylon. And at the center of that city was a tower, a lofty tower that was dedicated to self-glorification, not the glorification of God. Now, in the storyline of Scripture, some cities have become associated or represented representations of either being a city of man, a city that's opposed to God like Babel. You can think of these Sodom, Rome, Babel. These cities are like living billboards to human rebellion. They're cities that represent opposition to God. But there's another city, the city of Jerusalem, that in the scriptures serves as a, a pattern and a promise of that ultimate city, that perfect city, that city which is to come, the city of God. Listen to what we're told about our father Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11 says this By faith, he went to live. In the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents. For, here's the reason why, he was looking to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What city are you looking for? What city are you living for. If you have your Bibles, please open to Psalm 48. If you don't know uh, how to or where that is in the Bible, if you just open up to the middle, you can find the Psalms. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 48. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 472, Psalm 48. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context. We've been going through this portion of the Psalms these, this section of Psalms celebrate the fact that God, our Lord, is king. And we've seen the, the king's praise. And this morning we're going to consider the king's city, his royal city, the city of Jerusalem. And what this psalm does, this psalm summons us to look backward at the ancient city of Jerusalem. But it's also a summons to look forward to the future, 
to the city of God that is to come. So let's listen now to what scripture says. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels so that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Amen. My prayer for each one of us this morning is that God would remind us that while we have no lasting city here, we seek the city that is to come. I want us to see three things before we ask ourselves how we submit to this passage. We need to ask ourselves, what does it say? What does it mean? So the first observation I want you to consider in verses one and two, I want you to consider the great joy of the city. If you're a note taker, that's that's heading number one, the great joy of the city. Verses one and two in these opening verses, the psalmist highlights the great joy of the city of God. Look at verse one. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. The psalm begins with a joyful adoration and praise of God who dwells in this city, the city of our God. And then look what he says. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Now, we won't understand this psalm without first looking back at the historical context of this psalm. So what city is the psalmist describing? What's, what, what city is he talking about? Well, you see that phrase, the city of our God, in verse 1. It's in parallel, Hebrew poetry, it's in parallel in verse 2 with Mount Zion. Do you see that? So don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Don't believe my words. Just look at your Bibles. City of our God is Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is another name for what city? Just call it out. Jerusalem. 
So this psalm is talking about the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of the king. This is a psalm celebrating God who reigns over all things, but who reveals his covenant presence, particularly in this city of Jerusalem. Now, you remember, God rescued his people, Israel, from bondage in Egypt. He led them for 40 years in the wilderness. And then through Joshua, he led them into the promised land. And then he raised up David. And it was David who was enthroned as king in Israel. And Jerusalem became the great city of the king. And it was there in Jerusalem first in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple where God's holy presence was manifested. That was where the pilgrimages every year, the festivals, Israelites would travel up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there. And you notice there that the psalmist is excited to praise the God who dwells in Jerusalem. Think about it. If you were homeless for hundreds of years in exile in Egypt, you finally have a home. And the home of God's people ultimately was where God dwelled, which was Jerusalem. Now, these psalmists, these psalms, you'll notice if you look up in the little superscription, the sons of Korah, they were kind of like um, uh, the worship leaders in the tabernacle, in the temple. And they can't say enough good things about Mount Zion. Over in Psalm 84, they say, how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. In Psalm 50, they say that that out of Zion, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. These, 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 These guys who are writing this psalm, they would rather be doorkeepers in the house of the Lord our God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now, Sometimes mayors and city planners come up with these great marketing schemes and campaigns to make their cities more attractive. You've seen these uh, when you're driving on the highway, you'll see an exit. It'll be some small little town in the middle of nowhere. And it'll have on the sign. It says like exit and it'll say, you know, uh, apple pie capital of the world or something like. And you're thinking, oh, maybe I should you know, exit there and see that. And sometimes these slogans are on the outskirts of town and and sometimes they just they really go too far with their 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 claims. Look at verse two. Listen to what the psalmist, the staggering claim he makes about Jerusalem. He says his holy mountain, you know, Jerusalem was on a about a twenty five hundred foot hill, kind of a referred to here as a holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. Notice what he says is the joy of. Of all the earth. Wow. So if you're driving up to Jerusalem, the sign outside the city says, Welcome to Jerusalem, the joy of all the earth. Now that's a that's a bold claim, isn't it? That's a bold claim. That's an astounding claim, but it, it's actually a true claim. We see in other parts of Scripture, we see other parts of Scripture that while While Jerusalem, even today, even today, we don't see a lot of the things described in this psalm. But in Isaiah chapter two, this this is what it says about the, the last days, the days in which we're living right now. Isaiah chapter two, verse two says this. It shall come to pass in the last days 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So the great joy of the city of God will indeed, according to Isaiah 2 and according to this psalm, become the great joy of the whole earth. That's the first thing to see, the great joy of the city. Why is the, the city so, so excited? Well, look at this next, this next thought. Verses 4 to 8, I want you to consider the great security of the city. The great security of the city. The great, this is verses 4 to 8. The great joy of the city rests upon the great security of the city. Now, in modern life, we don't always associate the city with security. We think about when we go into the city, you need security, right? Cities are unsafe. This is where you get mugged. This is where you get robbed. This is where there's murders and riots and mayhem. That's, that's what we associate in our minds sometimes with the city. But that wasn't the case always. In the ancient world, cities were a place of refuge. The Hebrew word for city in the Old Testament, it simply means, it means a human settlement surrounded by a fortification or a wall. That's what a city is. It wasn't the size of the city. It was whether or not it had a wall around it or not. A city is a fortified habitation. It's a place of refuge. There's walls. Remember when Ezra and Nehemiah came back from exile, what was the first thing they did? Rebuilt what? You don't have to wake up now. They rebuilt what? The walls. Because they wanted a place that was secure. Where the people could be living inside and not be attacked. But the ultimate source of security for the city of God isn't the walls. Notice, God himself is the source of the security. Look at verse three. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. The Lord our God not only provides great joy for the city, but he is also the source of protection. He's made himself known as a fortress. Now, kids, you may not use that word fortress a lot. Fortress is like a really strongly built castle. So in your mind, when you hear fortress, think a big castle. If you were inside a castle, then there was towers and turrets and a drawbridge and you were inside those high walls, you would feel safe. And that's the description that's found here. You'd have no reason to fear if the Lord is your fortress. And maybe for some of you this morning, that's the one thing you needed to hear. Remember what we learned a few weeks ago in Psalm 46? What does Psalm 46 say? Psalm 46 tells us that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our what? Our fortress. He's our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Some of you need to remind yourself from God's word today that he is a fortress for his people. Look at verses four to seven. In order to help us understand what it means for God to be the fortress 
for his people. In verses 4 to 7, he gives a, an illustration of this. You find in these verses an illustration of how God in past history protected the city from some type of assault. Look what he says. For behold, the kings assembled, they came together as soon as they saw it, that is the city, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, or as the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. So this, the, the picture, we're not told specifically who the psalmist is referring to. You can write down in your Bible, 2 Kings 18 and 19. That would, that would be an example of when Sennacherib was trying to attack the city and the Lord thwarted his plans. Those were in the days of Hezekiah. We don't know. The, the point of this is, notice the contrast. The people of God in the city of God are praising the Lord. And the enemies of God who seek to attack the city of God are in a panic. They're thwarted. They're defeated. It's a reminder to us that God is greater than any enemy that God's people face. Verse eight, and as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. That is the Lord of the armies. The Lord of the armies is protecting his city. Now, this is very simple. This is very clear. This is very straightforward. I've probably not said anything to you that you haven't just said. Yeah, it's right there. I see that. Third thing I want you to notice, great joy of the city, the great security of the city. And then thirdly, the great God of the city, verses nine to 14. In these closing verses, the psalmist praises God. The psalmist takes a a kind of tour through the Jerusalem city gates into the city center. And as he's going on this tour of the city, he's Praising the great God of the city. Look at verse 9. We have thought, that is, your Bible may say meditated, contemplated. We've thought, we've dwelled on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So in your mind, picture it. You're you're walking through the city gates. You've entered the royal city and you're making your way into the very heart of the city. You're you're going up to the temple mount. So you're about 2,500 feet above sea level. And there before your eyes is the temple of God, Solomon's temple. And a sight of the temple provokes these sons of Korah to think, to meditate. First, to meditate on God's steadfast, faithful love. Think about it. At the temple, sacrifices for sin were being offered. And as they saw the smoke of those sacrifices rising, they're reminded once again of God's steadfast love. They think about verse nine. They think about the greatness of his glorious name that extends to all the earth. They think about the greatness of his justice and his righteous right hand. Verse 10. They think about the judgments that God has brought on his enemies. Verse 11. 
Christian, let me ask you, how do you spend your time throughout the week? Some of us, maybe all of us, are busy with all kinds of responsibilities. But do you have time on your calendar to do what the psalmist is doing here? Do you schedule time in your calendar and prioritize time to think, to contemplate, to meditate on the greatness of God's steadfast love? The psalmist does. Amidst the busyness of life, when is the last time that you've spent time seriously considering and contemplating God's infinite steadfast love and justice? Glory, brothers and sisters, begs for lingering. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, gets out of the RV, takes a glance and hops back in and says, all right, I saw it. Let's go home. What do you do at the Grand Canyon? I've never been, but I know people who have. Well, what do you do? You go there and you get there and you're so excited to get there. And then you get out and you just stare. You just ponder. You just contemplate the glory that's before your eyes. Because glory begs for lingering. If you've ever, when we used to live in um, Durham, North Carolina, we, we used to live right down the road from Duke. And every year, for years, I would take Allison, we would go on a date to hear Handel's Messiah in Duke Chapel. And guess what? In, in the 10 years we did that, nobody got up to go to the bathroom during Handel's Messiah at the very end when, when, when they're singing the Hallelujah Chorus. No one gets up and says, I gotta, there's a meeting I gotta, gotta get to. Why? Because glory begs for lingering. And let me tell you, friend, you will not long for the city of God that is to come if you don't long for the God whose city it is. And that that has to start here. It has to start now. It has to start today. It has to start maybe for some of you tomorrow morning. Don't schedule your, don't don't, don't prioritize your schedule. Schedule your priorities. Pick a time where you will spend time with God. Even this week, this week, schedule some time. Decide today. Pick a psalm and read it prayerfully. Memorize a verse or two or the whole psalm. Meditate on it. Follow this example of the sons of Korah and contemplate the character of God revealed in his word. One of my favorite writers, a guy named Thomas Brooks, put it this way. It, it, listen, it is, it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating on heavenly truths that make them sweet to the soul. It is not the bee touching the flower which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time on the flower which draws out the nectar. And then he says this, it is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most on the scriptures who will prove the the wisest and strongest Christian. How does the character of God in whatever passage you're reading reveal to you the face of the Lord Jesus Christ? The psalmist isn't he isn't satisfied with just enjoying the greatness of God. Notice in verse 12, 
he actually invites other people to see it himself, to see it for themselves. Look what he says. He, he beckons other, others to follow him on a kind of tour of the city. Verse 12, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. And then he tells us why. So that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. You see, he wants you to see the glory of God in the city so that you have something to tell the next generation. You have to study and meditate and see before you can say. Now, dads, you are to be the chief worship leader in your home. If you, if you want help to know how, how do you grow in raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we want to help you. We want to come alongside of you. One, one thing we could do is give you an easy resource to use for family worship. If you want to help your children grow in the fear of the Lord, this is a book called What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? See, really, it's easy. You can have one of these. I'll stand in the back afterwards. If you would like one for free, just come up and ask. Um, a great little resource that will help you in this. Now, we still haven't gotten to the point where we, that we ask, Okay, what do we do with the psalm as a church individually? How do we submit to this passage? Well, we've looked back and we've understood the historical context of this passage. I want to spend the next few minutes asking what are we supposed to do now with this psalm? How do we submit our lives corporately and individually to it? Before we do that, I just want to make a really quick uh, comment. We don't obey Psalm 48 by going online and booking a flight to Jerusalem. I hope you understand this. Um, some of you have traveled to the Holy Land. That's great. Uh, in fact, I, I really would like to go someday. Um, but you don't obey Psalm 48 when it says, you know, survey its ramparts. You don't say, well, I guess I got to go on a trip to the Holy Land. No, you don't have to make a pilgrimage to obey this psalm. You don't obey this. And even if you wanted to survey Solomon's temple, I got, I got news for you. It's not there anymore. You couldn't. It was destroyed. Jerusalem was burned, not once, but twice. The Babylonians did it in 586, and then the Romans did it in 70 AD, just like Jesus said that it would happen. So, so the, what happened? So, so what, what led to the destruction of the temple and the, 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 the city being burned? Well, well, simply, Israel failed to trust God's promises and to heed God's warnings, right? He told them if they obeyed his word, if they trusted him, he would protect them and watch over them and provide for them. But they disobeyed. They sinned against God. They hoard themselves out to idols. They listened to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of God. And just like our parents in the garden, they listened to the voice of the serpent. They, they trusted in his words instead of God's words. And they sinned against God. They rebelled against God. And just like Adam and Eve, God sent Israel east away from the presence of the Lord into exile. Now listen to these words of Jeremiah, the prophet, describing the exile of God's people away from the land, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. 
He says this in Jeremiah 3. I'm sorry, Lamentations 3. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall, devastation and destruction have come upon us. Do you hear the heartache in those words? The very thing the psalmist said would happen to those who attack the city because of the sin of Israel has actually come upon them. They are the ones in panic and facing destruction. What does this mean? It means simply this. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Our sins separate us from God. And so one application of us, we often read the Psalms and we align ourselves with whoever the hero or the good people are in the Psalm. It would probably be better to align ourselves with the enemies described in this Psalm. So one application for us is to just admit our own enmity with God, admit our own personal rebellion against God. That's what the Bible calls sin. And as you think about the whole story of Scripture, God gave Israel all of these things, the sacrificial system, the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the priests, all of that to communicate that the wages of sin is death and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The temple and the sacrifices and the bulls and the goats were all pointing forward to some, something greater that was to come. The Bible or the theologians call this typology. You came here for a seminary word. There it is, typology. You can write that down. Typology. What's typology? Typology is a, a way of analyzing promised-based patterns in Scripture. Say, what what is all this? Promise-based patterns. Well, think about it. These, these, These things show up all through the Old Testament. You've got events like the Passover. The Passover pointed forward to a Passover that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world would bring about. The Exodus pointed forward to a new and better Exodus. You've got institutions in the Old Testament like the sacrificial system, prophets, priests, kings, All of that pointed forward as types to their fulfillment in Christ. Even the temple pointed forward to a fulfillment in Christ. Think, where are you getting this, Pastor? There's a book I want you to read. It's called The Letter to the Hebrews. Okay, It's in your Bible. Read it sometime. It's all about how Jesus is better. He's a better word from God. He is a better high priest. He is a better sacrifice. And he brought about a better new covenant. It's all there in Hebrews. I'm just stealing his notes. So Israel's temple was a type that pointed forward to Christ, the true temple. What did you do with the temple? It was the place to meet with God, to receive forgiveness through sacrifice. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil of the what? 
The temple was torn from top to bottom. When Jesus overturned the money changers and threw them out of the temple, he said to them, they said, by what authority are you doing this stuff? And Jesus says, destroy this temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll what? I'll raise it again. And they say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. What are you talking about? And Jesus doesn't answer. But John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his what? His body. You see, Jesus is the temple of God. You don't have to buy a ticket to Jerusalem after this sermon. You don't have to make a pilgrimage. The way you obey this text is not going to a physical temple. It's by going to Jesus. By trusting in Christ. He's the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but what? By me. me. So friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, this psalm invites you to lay down your arms of rebellion. That's what the Bible calls sin. Living your life for your own name, for your own glory. Instead of living your life by faith in the one who gives you life and breath and everything. The one whom you've sinned against. And the Bible story tells us that Jesus Christ, this king, lived the life we were supposed to live, but haven't. And 2,000 years ago, outside the city gates of Jerusalem, he was crucified as a criminal, bearing the sins of his people. He wore a crown of thorns and he died the righteous one for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And that includes you. If you will turn from your rebellion and trust in Christ, he rose again from the dead And you don't have to bring him a sacrifice. You come to Jesus with empty hands because he is the sacrifice. You don't have to do anything because Jesus on the cross says it is finished. You don't need to bring any payment because he paid for all of it. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? If you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, I'll be standing at the back door. Please talk to me. Talk to someone around you. We would love for you to know what it means to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ. Christian, how how should we respond? Well, there's a passage I want you to write down. This is a passage that's it's kind of a commentary on Psalm 48. Listen to what Hebrews 13 says. Hebrews 13, 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. There's that connection to Psalm 48. But we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. 
for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, if you're a follower of Christ, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple. But if we are trusting in Christ this morning, we're united to Christ. The scriptures tell us the church of God is the temple. And so the, the first thing we need to notice that as citizens of the city of God, we are to joyfully praise the name of Christ in the world. Did you hear that when I read through Hebrews 13? Just like Psalm 48, we are to praise our king in the world. The scripture says that you're a member of the body of Christ. Listen to what first Peter says. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So one of the ways that you obey Psalm 48 is being here when the church gathers to sing praises to Christ. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of a lips that acknowledge his name. So that's the first way we can obey this passage is by bringing praise to our king as citizens of the, the city of God in the world. Secondly, as citizens of the city of God, we are to valiantly bear the shame of Christ in the world. We are to valiantly bear the, sh the shame of Christ in the world. If you're a teenager here, I want you to particularly listen up to this point. Verse 13 says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We are citizens of the city of God, but we live in the city of man. Therefore, we should expect hardship, rejection, shame, and reproach in this world. If you want to follow Christ, you have to come and die. But he raises the dead. And then you carry your cross in this world. And if you bear the name of Christ, you will be persecuted. You will be mocked. You will be reviled. You will be sh shamefully treated. We follow a crucified Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, following Jesus has never been easy. But listen, if you're a teenager, know this, that by, by choosing to follow Christ, you are, you're, you're admitting that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Don't let anyone ever tell you the lie of the prosperity gospel that says God's will for your life is to make you rich and, and happy and life is easy. God can do all those things, but he promises us that we will be persecuted. And this passage is telling us that if the world hated Christ, we will be hated. But this passage tells us that a single day in hell will be worse than a whole life spent carrying the cross. Third, as citizens of the city of God, we are to lovingly do good and share what we have 
for the sake of the world. So as followers of Christ, we stand against the world for the sake of the world. You hear me? You stand against the world for the sake of the world. So that you might lead people to Christ. Verse 16 says, do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. By God's grace, this congregation is incredibly generous, incredibly generous. And I thank God for that. But what's even more amazing is that the Lord has placed this congregation in this location to be a blessing. Even listen, even to the nations. If you wanted to buy a ticket right now to go share the gospel in Kabul, you couldn't. But in his strange providence, we learned this week that there are at least 2,500 Afghan refugees who will be coming to Dulles Airport and who will be being refugees that are settling here in Northern Virginia. And we as a church and as individual followers of Christ need to think about what, it, what would it be like to run from your, from your home with only the clothes on your back and to go to a strange land where you know probably no one. We have an opportunity, even as a church, as citizens of the city of God, to ask how could we love, care, serve, support, give, share the good news of Christ and good news of His love with refugees to show visibly and audibly that we are citizens first and foremost of the city that is to come. We, we are just learning about details about how we can care and encourage you all to serve in this way. Be looking for more details about this in the coming days from the church office. But be praying. Be praying for a heart that we might be able to care for sojourners individually and as a church. Last point. Last point of application. As citizens of the city of God, we faithfully seek the city that is to come. Psalm 48 reminds us that even though we live in the city of man, our ultimate hope is in the city of God, the city that is to come. You remember when we read Revelation 21? Did you notice the Christians in that passage building the city up to where it became the city of God? Did you remember that part? No, you don't remember it because it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. We don't build the city. You remember in the Bible, Revelation 1 says the city of God came down from heaven. God is the builder and architect of the city that is to come. And when we hope and desire for this better country. Do you realize we are walking in the footsteps of faith of every Christian who's ever lived? Hebrews 11 says this. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Friend, the world may be ashamed of you, but God isn't. God is not ashamed to call you his child. What is more, 
Your family may despise you. Your office, your office mates may make fun of you. But your God and Father has prepared for you a city. Christ himself has gone ahead to prepare a place for you. In John's vision of that glorious city, he tells us that our joy will be perfect. We will finally be with God without sin or crying or pain or death anymore. And God will be among us and we will be his people. And the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd and he will guide us to living water and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Our security in that city will be perfect. There'll be no more enemies. Sin will be gone. Satan will be gone. Did you notice that John said the gates of the city, they'll never be shut. We don't have to hide behind gates anymore because God is there. And there'll be no more temple because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Christian, this is the harbor of your hope. This is the goal that your gaze should be fixed on throughout all of your sojourning as you live in the city of man. This is the treasure that you should unceasingly desire. This is the hour and the blessing that all your plans and all your efforts should be inclined. This is our true country, our everlasting city. For we have no lasting city here but we seek the city that is to come. What city are you looking for? What city are you seeking? Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, help us to live in this world. Help us to do good to honor God, to commend the gospel by the way that we live and speak and love and serve and keep us ever mindful and hopeful, fixing our eyes on that city which is to come, the city of our great God and King. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior's name. Amen.